you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13 tonight, Revelation 13, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of the 13th chapter, which say this, and the dragon stood, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads, and on his horns were 10 diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Now, I want you to notice this verb, there was given to him. We'll point that out later. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Same verb. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him, same verb again, to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation, and here it is again, was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now I want to, before we read the 10th verse here, just make a comment about that. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. We haven't heard that since chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, what we read was, if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You'll notice it doesn't say what the Spirit says to the churches because the churches aren't here on earth, but what this does do is it informs us who even would be in heaven at this point chronologically that God expects his church to understand this truth and to defend this truth and understand how this book of Revelation unfolds and even how this Antichrist business all connects to this. He expects us to know that, which is why I think he's inserted that. And the fact that he's left out, if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, because the churches aren't going to be here when this happens, but he wants us to know it while we are here. That's what I think is happening here. Verse 10, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word, and we thank you for your people who are here to partake of it tonight. We pray your blessing on our time. We pray that you minister to our minds and hearts in light of this inspired text in the book of Revelation, and we will thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a context in which Satan has lost the war in heaven. We saw that in chapter 12. He got in a fight he and his angels, with Michael and his angels, and he lost. And as a result of that, he was confined to the earth. When the first verse of chapter 13 opens, what we discover is the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. What we find Satan doing now, since he's been defeated in heaven and confined to the earth, is standing on the sand, the sand of the seashore. As I read this, He's standing on the seashore. He knows he's limited to being here on earth, and he's planning, what am I going to do next? How am I going to attack? His goal 
has been perfectly laid out in verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went off to make war with the rest of her children. His goal is to destroy Israel. But now that he's limited and confined to this earth and he can't anymore go into heaven and have the demons coming out of heaven, he's confined to this earth. He has to come up with a plan for this last attack because he's not going to surrender. That's for sure. He's not going to surrender. So his final attack is, I'm going to get two guys to help me here on earth. And when you go straight through the book of Revelation and you come to chapter 13, you're introduced to one of them. This happens about the midway point of the tribulation. In fact, in the 13th chapter, we're introduced to two of them. But the one that we're introduced to tonight, he describes this diabolical agent that he's going to use as he's standing on the seashore thinking, what I need to do is I need to corral a couple of guys and get them to do my bidding. So he singles this guy out at this point in the tribulation, and he's going to use him for his purposes, and he's given the title the Antichrist. Actually, he's known by many descriptions and names. He's the one who will bring the abomination of desolation. We've seen that already in our previous studies. He is known as the false Christ. We saw that in Matthew 24. He is the one who will come in his own name. He doesn't come promoting the name of the Lord or promoting the name of God, but his own name. He is identified by Paul as the man of sin. He's identified by Paul as the son of destruction. He's identified by Paul as the lawless one. He's identified by John as a liar, and he's identified also by John as a deceiver. We are living at a time where there's just a lot of deceptive things. We're getting used to seeing deception. In fact, I'll tell you what we're at right now in our world. It's hard to know what to believe anymore when you hear anything. Like, for example, there's a commercial. I won't name who runs the commercial, but it's a commercial that talks about the fact that 500 doctors in Michigan support the position of this political candidate. What the commercial doesn't say is there are nearly 21,000 doctors in Michigan. So you have 500, but what about the other 20,000 who don't support your position? Or even if half of them, 10,000 don't support your position. See, it's just deceptive stuff. That's what we're seeing which is exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. He's also identified as the beast. Now, when you go through the Bible, there are a couple of nouns that are used for beast. And the one can be like a beast of burden, a beast that does helpful things for people. That's not the word that's used here. This is a vicious beast. This is a killer beast. And he's given that title. But of all of the titles in the Bible that refer to this individual, the one that probably the world is most familiar with is he's called the Antichrist. Now, the actual name Antichrist comes from 1 John 2, 18. And here's what that verse says. Children, it is the last hour, just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen from this, we know that it is the last hour. Now there are a couple of things to think about when you read that. Just as you heard the Antichrist is coming, I guess the thing that we would think about, or at least ask a question, is, well, where did you hear that? Just as you've heard the Antichrist is coming, when did you hear that? Because the book of Revelation wasn't written yet. We make a couple of assumptions here. Number one, they obviously had studied the book of Daniel. 
And in the book of Daniel, they'd certainly learned about this coming beast, this coming Antichrist who would surface about three and a half years into the tribulation. And we also know they'd heard it from the Apostle Paul. When you go through the book of Daniel, as we've gone through the book of Daniel, there are 52 facts he brings out about the Antichrist. And when you go through the writings of Paul, especially 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he develops the doctrine well. So what we can assume is in the early days of the church, when John is even penning this book of 1 John and he brings up the subject of the Antichrist, there were people in church that were talking about this, studying this stuff. This isn't new to us. They were studying this doctrine. Now, the actual name Antichrist is a composite of two Greek words, anti and Christos. The preposition anti means against, in opposition to something. It also can mean in the place or as a substitute for something. And the name Christos or Christ is that which means he is the anointed Messiah of Israel. So when we call him the Antichrist, which is the term John uses for him, and John is, of course, penning the book of Revelation, It's an appropriate name because it's a name that would indicate he's going to be a guy who's going to surface, who's going to try to take the place of Jesus Christ on earth. He's going to pretend to be Israel's deliverer. He's going to pretend to be Israel's Messiah. He'll be in total opposition to and against God and against Jesus Christ and against Israel. And when you come to the first verse of Revelation, we come to a prophetic prediction in the middle of the Great Tribulation, and where Satan says it's time to surface this beast. Actually, what you'll see in Revelation 13 is we're going to meet two beasts, because Satan, now that he's confined to earth, is going to say, I'm going to use two guys, special guys. The first one is called the Beast of the Sea, and as you'll meet him tonight, he is the Antichrist. And the second one is called the Beast of the Earth, and that will turn out to be the false prophet. What we learn from the statement that John makes in chapter 13, verse 9, is God wants us to know this information. Even though we're not going to be here to experience it, he wants us to know this information. God wants specific prophetic information about the Antichrist read, understood, and proclaimed. He wants us to understand that there are things to learn from this. Hopefully we'll point out a few tonight. There are 19 facts about the Antichrist And then in Revelation 17, we get two more. First of all, the Antichrist is a beast. We've already pointed that out. In Daniel's vision, he received the same prophetic vision of the Antichrist that John is seeing, and he also identified him as being a terrifying, dreadful, very strong beast. And God identifies him the same way here when Satan surfaces him at this moment. This is the moment he surfaces. He's a scary guy. He doesn't look scary, but he's a scary guy. He's a wild, vicious, untamable, uncontrollable, ferocious beast. Daniel compared him to a lion, a bear, and a leopard. He's very unique. He'll be the worst beast who's ever surfaced. The second fact that's brought out about him is he is a Gentile. Verse 1 says, I saw the beast coming up out of the sea. Now, that language, coming up out of the sea is language that refers to Gentile nations. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 57, 20, the wicked are like the tossing sea. And if you go over to Revelation 17, and I would ask you to turn over there tonight, Revelation chapter 17, and you look at verse 13, you can certainly see a reference to what this sea business means. 
in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So what we learn from this is that this person is surfacing out of the sea. This is a Gentile, not a Jew. And he's going to be a person who will snuggle up to another guy we'll meet next week, the false prophet. I think he's going to be part Jewish, but not the Antichrist. He's a Gentile. The third fact about him is he is a dominant political leader. We learn from verse 1, having ten horns and seven heads. The Antichrist has ten horns. The horns, as we've pointed out in previous studies, represent he's going to be a strong, powerful military guy. We know from Daniel and Revelation that the ten horns refer to ten major world leaders, ten kings who are going to give their allegiance to the Antichrist. He'll have so much world power that he literally, according to Daniel 7, will become the law of the world for three and a half years. He's going to literally be the law of the world for three and a half years. He will have dominant political power. The fourth fact about him is he will have complete dictatorial political control. Verse 1 says, having ten horns and seven heads. Now the seven heads, if you go over to chapter 17, we can get the interpretation of that. We let the Bible interpret itself as much as we can. In chapter 17 and verse 9, we read, here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. What we learn is those seven heads are seven kings. It would seem to suggest that you have a series of some type of ten-nation confederacy that has revived itself in ten horns, probably in Europe, a European confederacy that has revived itself, but then you have these seven heads who are seven kings of the world, and they obviously are governing the rest of the world. Perhaps it refers to the seven continents. I mean, you have seven continents in the world, Africa, Europe, Asia, North America, South America, Australia, and Antarctica. And it could be that the entire world literally is giving their allegiance to this dictatorial Antichrist. Now, the fifth fact is the Antichrist will have the highest position of world royalty. And on his horns were ten diadems. Now that's interesting. Because you would think you would read on his heads. On his heads are these ten diadems. It says on his horns are ten diadems. What that tells us is the Antichrist will be viewed as king royalty over the world. The diadem is a crown of royalty. But by virtue of the fact that it's put on his horns... We would learn from this, he's going to get his power by brutality, brutal attacks, like an animal with horns. He'll have satanic royalty, he'll achieve his authority and achieve his worldwide kingdom reign by brutality, brute force would be a good way to say it. The sixth fact is he'll have blasphemous names. Verse 1 says, and on his heads were blasphemous names. It won't surprise me if he calls himself God. In fact, I think he will, actually. It won't surprise me if he calls himself the Savior of the world, the Christ, the Lord Adonai Elohim may call himself Jesus. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to call. He'll have blasphemous names. He'll use a plural number of them because the noun names is plural. 
So he's going to use not just one name. He's going to use all kinds of blasphemous names to speak against God. He will be a big braggart. We know that. We know, according to Paul, that he'll exalt himself above everything that's called God or every object of worship. And we learn here in Revelation that every name, every title that he ever uses about himself is going to be blasphemous. It will be a name that's designed to be against God. It will be designed to demean God. It'll be a title that will fit him well as the Antichrist because that's what he is. He's against God. The seventh fact is the Antichrist will be a vicious political leader. Verse 2 said, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Now it's interesting to me that when Daniel, Daniel uses exactly the same imagery to describe this beast, only the order that Daniel uses is lion, bear, and leopard. And you would think, logically, that this Antichrist who's called up here by Satan would use that order. You would expect to read, and the beast which I saw was like a lion and like a bear and like a leopard. But it starts off with leopard, which is just interesting. Because it tells us that he's not going to start out with that brutality of a lion or bear, but he's going to work fast. We may remember from going through the book of Daniel that these animals were images of political powers. The lion represented Babylon that was very destructive and very ferocious, and then you had the bear, which represented Medo-Persia, remember one side was bigger than the other, representing Persia, that would be the dominant power and force. And then you had the leopard, which represented Greece, and Greece would move swiftly to take things over. We learned that from the book of Daniel. Well, the Antichrist will have traits combined of all of them, but what we would learn here is he won't initially surface like the Babylonians did in just a brutal wave. He's going to surface fast. He'll move fast. And he'll be an Alexander the Great type that will take over the whole world. So we learn that about it, just by the word order here, that he'll be like a leopard and then like a bear and like a lion. All of these describe beasts. He'll be the worst beast to ever exist. Now the eighth fact is the Antichrist is directly empowered by Satan. Verse 2 says, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, even though Satan at this point is standing on the sand of the seashore, even though he's confined to this earth and he's lost any of his rights to appear in heaven, he hasn't lost his power yet. He hasn't lost that. And what we learn here is that when he's confined here and he's enraged against this woman, he's going to directly empower this beast he will empower him himself. Daniel says he has unusual power, but it's not his own. Paul, in writing about this Antichrist, said all of his activities empowered by Satan, he'll be able to perform signs and false wonders by the power of Satan. Everything he is, everything he has will be satanic. Every power he possesses, and he'll fool people. Every political prestige that he earns, every international acclaim that he receives will be satanic. And he's not a man wearing dark clothing with pentagrams tattooed on his head and horns coming out of his head. We're talking here about a very shrewd, smooth, successful, professional politician who's able to move in the religious arenas and circles 
We're talking about a guy who can move into the world and seem to calm it down. And this guy is completely controlled by Satan and his forces. The ninth fact about him is he will be resurrected from being dead. Verse 3 says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, it's clearly stated here that this beast is going to receive some type of deadly wound to the head, and that will lead to some form, as I understand the language, of miraculous healing that is going to just please people all over the world. Now, some people have looked at this verse, and they've said that it refers to the dead Roman Empire that is miraculously revived by the Antichrist. Some have said it refers to a past history political leader who was dead, who will miraculously be brought back to life. And some have said it refers to the Antichrist who's in the tribulation assassinated, or at least appears to be assassinated, and Satan is going to bring him back to life. The first view makes the miraculous healing of this a nation, and the last two makes it a healing of a human. Now, I think the first interpretation is based on the fact that just one head is wounded, and yet the beast does not appear to die. So the view is that even though the Roman Empire appears to be dead and dormant, it didn't really go into extinction. It's still been in existence what happened is, to the Roman empires, they just kind of broke up and merged into other areas, and so at this point, the Antichrist is able to revive it, and that's what this refers to. Some interpret it that way. But the second and third interpretations are the easiest to contextually and grammatically defend, because the fatal wound in verse 3 is given to a person who has a personal pronoun, his, not it. The text says his fatal wound was healed, not its fatal wound was healed. And also, we can make some other observations. The context is clearly discussing some political world satanic leader. And other passages of scripture discuss a powerful satanic leader that's on the radar at this point in the tribulation. And Revelation 13, 12 would seem to suggest that this is clearly a beast who had suffered a fatal wound and he ends up being worshipped. And it certainly would indicate we're not talking about worshipping a nation here. We're talking about a human. And the same word slain that's used in Revelation 5-6 is used here and it refers to the actual death of Jesus Christ. So I think we're pretty safe to conclude that we're talking here about a person that Satan is going to allow to experience some type of fatal wound to the head. It's a real person, and he's going to, at this point, bring this guy back to life. The only question is, are we talking about a person from previous history, some political leader of the past, or are we talking about the Antichrist who is in existence at this point in the tribulation? The real difficulty of that question comes from the perfect passive verb in verse 3, which says that his head's as if it had been slain. The Greek text uses a perfect passive verb, which indicates it is looking back to some point in time where it did seem to happen earlier, and then he's raised up here. But I think it's referring to some contemporary Antichrist. That's my own view. There have been those who suggested this will be a re-resurrection of Caligula. Some have said it'll be a re-resurrection of Nero. Some have said it'll be a resurrection of Hitler. Some have said it'll be a resurrection of John F. Kennedy. 
I don't think that at all. I think what we're talking here is the Antichrist who surfaces at this point in time. And he's going to surface at the same time the false prophet surfaces. You'll meet him, Lord willing, next Sunday night. He's going to demand that this Antichrist be worshipped whose fatal wound was healed. So here's what I suspect happens. Sometime during the early days of the tribulation, this Antichrist is going to surface. He's going to make a peace deal with Israel. He's going to allow Israel to rebuild the temple. He's going to allow Israel to resume her worship. And he's going to appear to be a man of peace. And somehow in that time frame, he's going to be what appears to be assassinated. And at this point, Satan is going to bring this guy back up to life. And the whole world, verse 3 says, the whole world, the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now that shows you how sick this world is. When the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in Israel, and the apostles would tell people, the Lord Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, they didn't follow him. In fact, they wanted to kill the apostles, and most of them they did. But you get this satanic guy who seems to come back from the dead, and the world says, wow, wow, let's follow the beast. That shows you what this world is, doesn't it? The tenth fact is the Antichrist is going to promote Satan worship. We learn in verse 4, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. The Antichrist is Satan's man. He's going to promote Satan worship. This is what Satan has always wanted. I mean, he's always dreamed about this moment. In Isaiah, he said, I will be like the Most High God. And so at this point, when he's confined to this earth and he's working with these two guys as his agents, he's going to see to it that the whole world worships him and he will be giving these two direct power to promote that. And I don't think it's any coincidence that more and more places right now are starting to promote Satan worship. You're seeing this even in schools now. You're seeing this concept in school. I think this is all the clouds forming and setting the stage for what really is going to happen in the final three and a half years of the tribulation. So how close must we be to the rapture of the church because we're gone before the first three and a half years of the tribulation? Which brings us to the 11th fact. The Antichrist will promote himself to be worshipped. Verse 4 says, And because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? I want to talk about this guy for a minute. We learn from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that he's going to sit in the temple in Jerusalem that he authorized to be rebuilt. He's going to be demanding that people worship him as God. Paul tells us he'll actually display himself and say he's God. Daniel says he will magnify himself about everything that is called God. This guy is going to be a good-looking, we learn from Daniel, relatively young, powerful, successful man. And people in this world are going to worship him. And that's the kind of person people in this world want to worship. I mean, if you are a smooth deceiver and liar, and if you happen to be good-looking and you appear to be successful, whether you're an athlete, actor, or politician, people want to worship you. They're drawn to this. 
Well, at this point in the tribulation period, when this Antichrist comes back, people will worship him and praise him. And nobody in the world views him as bad. They didn't view the Lord Jesus Christ as the great Savior, but they viewed Christ as bad. In fact, when they were given a choice, would you rather us crucify him or Barabbas? Who do you want to crucify? They said, well, crucify him. Nobody views the Antichrist as bad. This is the kind of man the world worships. You know, I heard a great Bible expositor say one time, and I've thought about this long and hard, and I thought, boy, I agree with him. I'll be 72 here in a few days. I don't ever remember, and maybe my memory's escaping me, and that could be a real possibility, because I don't even know what I'm saying right now. But, uh, but the fact is, I don't ever remember in the history of my lifetime a political leader who ran for an office who didn't brag about himself. I can't name one. And I can't remember one political leader in history who ever said nice things about their opponent. This is the kind of person that gets elected to offices. This is the kind of person the world worships. They're charismatic. The Antichrist is going to be charismatic. He'll seem to have it all together, and the world worships this kind of guy who promotes himself. That's what he does. He promotes himself. The twelfth fact is he'll have a blasphemous mouth. Verse 5, there was given to him, now look at this, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, Satan does his greatest work with words. He uses people to communicate words. He's going to speak through this Antichrist. He's going to speak out against God. He will be a proud, arrogant type of person. Daniel says he'll make arrogant boasts, and he will defiantly and arrogantly speak out against the Lord. I'm convinced he will invent his own method of salvation. People will believe it. He'll be a smooth talker, a smooth talker. You get a smooth talker that's not interested in the truth of God, that's dangerous stuff. Dangerous. You know, it's been pointed out that every theological school that ever went bad, went bad because they got a dangerous talker heading the school. That's where it started. Think about it. Every denomination that's ever gone awry, some dangerous talker got into power. They weren't interested in truth, not the truth of God. They just led people to follow him. That's what this Antichrist will do. And the fact that he's empowered by Satan, he'll have greater power than any who's ever existed to be able to do it. The 13th fact is the Antichrist will be limited in time. Verse 5 says, he will be given authority for 42 months. God is the one who permits the Antichrist to exist. 
He is allowed to exist for three and a half years. Daniel says exactly the same thing, time, times, and half a time. We learn from Revelation 12, 6, that's broken down into 1260 days, three and a half years. So it will be the final three and a half years of the tribulation when the Antichrist will be permitted to have this satanic power and influence. This is all sovereignly controlled by God. God's using this, by the way, for his purposes. Don't ever forget that. He's using them for his purposes. Which brings us to the 14th fact, the Antichrist will wage war with the saints. Verse 7, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. The fact that we read that verb, it was given four times in two verses, twice in verse 5, twice in verse 7, indicates God's the one in sovereign control, Satan isn't. God's the one who's in sovereign control. He has his plan that's being worked out. This is a time when he's pouring out wrath and he's allowing Satan and his forces to actually do it. The fact that the noun saints is articular, I think, has in view Israel. He's enraged with the woman. He's going after the Jews and he wants to target them and he wants to stamp them out and wear them down. That's what Daniel says he's going to do, wear down the saints. And that's exactly what happens here. He'll wage war against the saints. He's permitted by God to do so. This will determine, really, who it is that really believes the word of God and believes the 144,000 who are witnesses for the Lord and believes those two prophets that were headquartered in Jerusalem because if they just want to hang around Jerusalem thinking this guy's a great guy, they're going to die. Which brings us to the 15th fact, the Antichrist will overcome the saints. He will overcome them with verbal and physical assault and God will permit them to Attack the world. He's going to attack the world. That's what you see in verse 7. He was also given to him to make war with the saints, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Now, I would have to say that's going to be the worst moment that's ever existed in the history of the world. And what we learn from this is when Satan does the worst thing that he can possibly do in the world... He's still subject to the sovereignty of God. He can only do what God lets him do. See, God is using this for his judgment purposes. This is helping fill up the wrath of God that he's pouring out on a God-mocking, Christ-rejecting world. So God is actually using Satan to fulfill his purposes because in all reality, it's God who's in control of all of it. Which brings us to the 16th fact, the Antichrist will have authority over the whole world. That's what he says in verse 7, every tribe, people, tongue, nation given to him, God is going to allow him to have, as it were, his moment in which the world is his. And then we learn something interesting, the 17th fact, the Antichrist will be worshipped by all unbelievers worldwide, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Every unsaved person on this earth will worship the Antichrist. Every person whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will worship him. Everyone except the elect will worship him. Now, the book of life of Lamb is God's sovereign book of salvation. It was written before the foundation of the world. And what's really intriguing here, 
about what is said about this book is from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So what I would conclude from reading those words is that before the world was even formed, God was thinking through the sin of the people that would come into existence in the world, and he was also thinking about the sacrifice that his son would have to make in order to save those people from sin. This was known before the foundation of the world, and he comprised this book of life that has the names of the people in it who are saved. Before the world was formed, you just can't dodge this. God is the one who determined from before the foundation of the world, you know, I'm going to create a world. I'm going to have a garden. The people aren't going to obey me in that garden. The people are going to fall into sin. You may say, well, why didn't God just shut the thing down? Why did he create the world with the tree in the garden? Why didn't he just stop the sin and stop this whole mess? And the ultimate theological answer to that, and it would take a long time to get into a theological study of this point. We've done it in doctrine classes, but... The ultimate answer to that conclusion is because God knew there were things about him we cannot learn without that. We can't learn things about God without that. We would never know about God's grace if he didn't have sin. we never know about God's righteousness and justice if he didn't have sin in this world. We would never know about God's sovereignty if he didn't have this doctrine of elect. We'd never know this stuff. So God knew it was better for us to understand these things about him, which is why he obviously permitted that, because he's thinking this through before the foundation of the earth. You may not like the doctrine of election, but I'm telling you, this is what it does grammatically say right here. Before the foundation of the earth, there were these names, and when you get to this point in the tribulation, if those people have not been in that book, they're not in that book written from the foundation of the world, they are going to worship the Antichrist. All unbelievers all over the world will worship this one guy, and they would not worship Jesus Christ. The 18th fact is he's going to be executed. Verse 10 says, If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with the sword, he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. The time of the Antichrist is going to be a time that features captivity, death, killing. I mean, that's where, as we saw in Matthew, that text becomes so critical. When Gentile people take in those Jewish people and they provide for them and they clothe them and they visit them in prison and they see that they are having their needs met, their medical needs met, they're doing what they can to help minister to them, they're going to be privileged to enter the kingdom. But what we learn here is that tribulation is going to be brutal. I mean, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet that you'll meet next week are going to be brutal as to what they're going to do in the Antichrist. But God says, here's the perseverance of the saints. You can know this. They're not going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. In fact, we learn from Revelation 19.20 that the Antichrist is going to be killed, thrown into hell, body and all. We see that later in the book. The court will sit in judgment for his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. That's what we read in Daniel. The 19th fact is the Antichrist will have a specific name, mark, and number. We're going to look at that, Lord willing, more next Sunday night. We do not know what the name of the Antichrist is. 
Nor do we know what the specific mark is. We do know his number. The number is given there in verse 18, 666. 666. Lord willing, we'll look at that next Sunday night. The 20th fact about him is the Antichrist is going to have some connection to some religion. We know that from chapter 17 and verse 3. The Antichrist is going to have full support of false religious system. A lot of people have said it's going to be Catholicism. I think it's going to be the Muslim religion. I mean, I can't think of a religion that would be more hateful to the Jewish people than the Islamic religion. And I'm certain that at this point in the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to have a deal where he's working with the Islamists to help him kill the Jews. And the 21st fact is the Antichrist is going to have support of major world powers. We've already seen that. But there have been a lot of different political leaders who've tried to gain control of the world. They haven't been able to do it. The Antichrist doesn't even have to try. The world powers will just be willingly given to him. There will be world powers that will just give their allegiance to the Antichrist. They'll turn it over. Why? Because Satan is confined to this earth and he's causing it. Now, in this particular time that you and I live, you get to choose. You get to choose, and here are your choices. Salvation and freedom in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Purpose to know him, follow him. Or captivity and condemnation in Satan. Don't believe in Jesus Christ, just follow along with the world into condemnation. But you can know this, unless your name is in that Lamb's book of life, unless you have the righteousness of God that gets you into that Lamb's book of life, you'll never see heaven. And the only way to get that righteousness is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Invite him to be your Savior. May we pray. If you've never trusted the Lord, why not do it right now, where you are? Just invite Christ to come into your life and save you. Father, we thank you for your precious word. It's interesting that when we read this text of scripture and then you say, let he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, you expect us to know this truth. You expect us to know doctrine. You expect us to know eschatology. We need to have our ducks in a row so we understand what we believe, why we believe it about future events. And I pray, Lord, that as we have opportunities to defend truth, we would be good defenders of the faith. I pray we would be people who would always thank you for the wonderful grace that we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.